friends, welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. This is a huge week for us, as you know, if you've been able to keep up with us. It is gymnastics week, which sort of came about as a result of the conversations between the three of us and between some of you on Twitter in response to Athlete A and the Heavy Metals podcast series. Today, we have an extremely special episode because it's actually the first of two episodes with our guest interviewee. Just as we had not intended to have two episodes about Georgia's fantastic work on gymnastic sport history, we also did not plan to have two episodes with this next guest. But he was so incredibly generous and forthcoming and sharing his recollections and insights, and he was actually just a total delight, that we wanted to make sure that you listened to every bit of what he had to say and our subsequent conversations. For these two episodes, we spoke with Geza Pojar, which in English, English is usually pronounced as Pozar. In this first episode, Geza gives us the complete background about the communist Romanian sports system that has been totally left out of every single discussion about the Carolis, both in Athlete A, The Heart of Gold, as well as ESPN's Heavy Metals podcast series that just came out. He shares with us his experiences as a choreographer in communist Romania in the 1970s and 80s, the nature of the Karoli's abuse of coaching tactics in Romania, and compares them to how other coaches worked in the country. And note, this is a very unique take that we have not heard before, so be sure to take note when he talks about it. His recollections illustrate quite a different story about communist Romanian sport, as well as about the Karoli system and what Geza himself witnessed within it. We really want to highlight Gaze's perspective as it helps us get away from this anti-communist, pro-American, capitalist narrative of sport that is a legacy of our Cold War perspective as Westerners. And it still completely dominates how Americans and the Western media typically portrayed it even in 2020. As we discuss with him, this narrative completely clouds our understanding of what Eastern Bloc sport was actually like. And perhaps more crucially for us, it moreover blinds us from the real abuses in our own system in the US and arguably the West more generally. His perspective therefore confirms much of what I said about this narrative in my episode, which was number 20, if you haven't listened to it. Now this intro is gonna be a little bit longer because as the resident historian of the podcast and as a historian of Central Europe and sport, I thought it might be helpful to share some context that could help us understand really the gravity of what he discusses. First is that Geza, as well as both of the Karolis, um, are ethnic Hungarians born in the western part of Romania in what is famously called Transylvania. This region is comprised of a mix of ethnicities, mainly Germans, Hungarians, and of course Romanians. And this is due to the centuries in which the region was ruled by the Austrian, Austrian Empire, then by the Austro-Hungarian Empire from 1867 until the end of World War II, with under the Austro-Hungarian Empire, it was mainly ruled by Hungarians. The region was allotted to Romania after World War I when the Entente or Western powers broke up the Austro-Hungarian Empire after the conflict. The Nazis allowed the Hungarians to annex Transylvania back to Hungary in World War II, along with other territories. And then after World War II ended, it was returned to Romania. So there's a fair bit of sort of swapping the territory back and forth, and just ethnically, it's just um, kind of mixed. 
And so all of this history precedes the communist era that Geza discusses with us. And this is also why a ton of Romanian gymnastics figures have Hungarian last names and spoke Hungarian, which Geza mentions at least once in the episode. Now, ethnicity and nationalism continued to be an issue during the Cold War in Romania. Historian Stefano Botany has shown how, under Stalin's direct order, the communist Romanian government allowed parts of Transylvania to be a sort of autonomous zone for Hungarians. And this meant that they had certain linguistic, cultural, and political rights that were not necessarily afforded in other places. This period lasted roughly from 1952 to 1956, and what we normally think of as sort of the Stalinist or harshest period of rule throughout much of the Eastern Bloc, and so this is sort of an interesting twist to that sort of Stalinist uh, conception. But the 1956 Hungarian Revolution changed a lot. And I talked about the impact it had on Hungary on Hungarian sport in my episode. But whereas in Hungary, the 1956 revolution, the mass defections of athletes, as well as the 200 plus thousand Hungarian refugees who fled to the West, you know, these dynamics eventually led to a drastic decrease in political rep uh, repression, state surveillance, and also an improvement in social conditions. But in Romania, the opposite happened over time for Hungarians. And this is because the Romanian state feared that Hungarian nationalists, spurred by the revolution, would rise up. And so their fear led the state to end their policy of autonomy for Hungarians. And over time, it ramped up its repression of the Hungarian community over time. Now, it's also important to understand the context of communist Romania during the period of Geza and the Karoli's career that he discusses, which is mainly the 1970s and very early 1980s. Nicolae Ceausescu was the general secretary of the Romanian Communist Party from 1965 to 1989. He initially seemed like a quote-unquote different kind of communist leader. For example, he relaxed the state's uh, censorship of the press, and also famously openly condemned the invasion of Czechoslovakia during the 1968 Prague Spring, which was when the Warsaw Pact countries of the Soviet Union and the other Bloc countries invaded Czechoslovakia. But he, at the same time, he also made abortion illegal in 1966. And this is important because at the heart of communist ideology was this idea that the, that the state would eliminate all differences between everybody and, and um, implement um, equal policies, and including gender ones. And so, whereas most countries were legalizing abortion, Romania made it illegal in 1966 and very heavily criminalized it in the 1980s in a history that is truly horrifying, although I won't get more into it here. Um, now, Ceausescu pursued a specifically Romanian or nationalist path in the Cold War, where he wanted to convince Western countries that he was a Western ally in this sort of sea of bloc nations. Romania, in return, received special trade agreements with the West, which was part of what he wanted. For example, the U.S. granted Romania most favored nation status, which if you want, you can look it up, but essentially opens up the door to a lot of special trade agreements and economic assistance. Uh, it's important to note too that um, producing Olympic champions was seen by the Romanian state to really prove the legitimacy of its specifically Romanian road to communism, both to the Western powers, but also to the rest of the Eastern Bloc. It was sort of a way to, to, to show some Romanian nationalism. 
and also that it was a more humane state and one that could be communist, but it could also work with and be allies to the West. But while the West viewed Ceausescu in Romania favorably, at home people suffered tremendously as I talked about with the abortion policies. The conditions in Romania in the 70s and 80s, um, especially the 80s, were only slightly better than Albania, which was really had the worst situation of all of the Eastern Bloc. Now this meant that every other system was more humane and livable, including the Soviet Union. All of the material shortages that we associate with communism, such as bread lines, but also mass repression, an enormous secret police presence in the form of the Securitate, these existed in the 1980s in Romania, whereas in places like Hungary and Poland, this sort of harsh atmosphere was present in the 1950s. So when Geza mentions how much he and the Carolis wanted to leave, how important it was to get those special food and other privileges as a result of being a successful coach, and thus the importance of producing Olympic champions such as Nadia Komanec and others, and of course his references to their identity as Hungarians being problematic, it was all because of this confluence of sort of domestic conditions, but also the connection between domestic conditions and the cultural diplomacy um, sort of the foreign relations policy of the Romanian state. Um, so I know I went on quite a bit about this historical context, but hopefully this helps us place everything in, in the context that we need to understand it. And I, I want to say too, that if you have not listened to Dr. Georgia Servant's episodes, numbers 28 and 29, please, please listen to it. You absolutely need to. Um, she really lays out the sort of broader international history of how gymnastics was formed. And so I really think her episode that I did with her, combined with what Geza says, really gives us this picture that we do not get in our Western, very pro-American representations of this history. And uh, before we start the episode, um, I'd be remiss to say that if you are listening to the podcast, you like what you hear, you have comments or questions, you want to use it in your and use it in your scholarship or teaching, please let us know. We are pouring an enormous amount of energy that we love and we love doing it, um, but we don't actually know our people are responding if they don't leave reviews for us, if they're not emailing us or whatever. Um, so please leave us a text review. I think we still only have one text review, so we would love to see more from, from you all. Um, but also send us an email at theendofsport at gmail.com. And we are extremely active on Twitter. As some of you may know, um, our Twitter handle and IG handle are at end of sport pod. So talk with us, get in conversation with us. We have met much more exciting uh, material coming uh, or more episodes with exciting material coming, uh, but enjoy the episode. And uh, yeah, I think that's it. For those of you who have listened to our other episodes, you know that our MO of the podcast is to examine critically all the ways that sports are harmful. As a result of our explorations, we end up discussing how people have experienced severe mental, physical, and unfortunately sexual harassment and or abuse in sports. This episode is no different. We therefore need to issue a content warning for our listeners as we will be discussing one, if not more, of those forms of abuse in connection to sport. While what we have to say is extremely important so that we can change sport to be more healthy, please heed this content warning if you think it might be harmful to you.
Reza Pojar is a former choreographer for the Romanian and U.S. national gymnastics teams who long worked with and defected with the coaching team Marta and Bela Caroli. His reflections of his time with the Carolis have recently been featured in films like Athlete A and The Heart of Gold, as well as the just-launched ESPN 30 for 30 podcast series, Heavy Metals. Welcome, uh, Geza, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So first off, we like to ask all of our guests, how have you been coping with the pandemic in uh, Sacramento, California? Well, uh, we uh, had been uh, shut down uh, March 13. So March 13, I was uh, helping in two different gyms on uh, uh, close to San Francisco and on here in the valley in a small town, uh, uh, Tracy. And um, the, I just was, uh, I, I just got the information and so the gym uh, cannot uh, uh, be open anymore. So um, we stayed home. My wife is a, a high school teacher. So she's an IB French teacher. So um, she had to um, do her classes, you know, uh, uh, like in a virtual, uh, um, uh, you know, communications with her students, you know. I mean, actually yeah. not virtual. She did more with pre-emails. We didn't do uh, Zoom, anything like that. Mm -hmm. just um, communicated with the uh, kids with uh, dreamers. And um, we had the ones who had no um, computers, they got mm -hmm. these uh, uh, packets, you know, from um, the teachers what to uh, study at home, you know. Mm -hmm. So that was her, uh, for her a different, a lot different, because she was a very hand-on teacher. She likes mm -hmm. the, the, you know, she likes the show in the classroom and, you know, the interaction with the kids, she loves mm -hmm. that. So she was very, very, um, you know, uh, very upset about that. Yeah. Me, yeah, me I the think... same. yeah, I was the same because mm -hmm. I love the kids. I love to, uh, you know, interact with them. But I did some Zoom classes after mm -hmm. the uh, lockdown. I uh, did some uh, Zoom classes, so that helped a little bit to keep in touch. Mm -hmm. That's with the kids, yes. Has your gym uh, reopened since then, or has it been closed since March 13th, I think you said? My own gym. I sold my own gym in 1912. Oh, in 2012, sorry. Oh. 1912, that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> okay. In 2012, I uh, sold my gym, so I am an independent contractor. And I work in uh, not only in California, but... Uh, in um, different cities of the United States, like New York. You know, I go to South Carolina, I go to Los Angeles. I have um, different uh, gyms um, where I work with kids from years. I'm collaborating with some gyms, you know, for more than 25 years now or so. Yeah, yeah. Well, excellent. So we'll just sort of hop right into it. Um, so our focus for the podcast is very much on the harm that can be part of the culture of elite sport. We would love to discuss your experiences and recollections from both Romania and here in the U.S. Now, beginning with Romania, could you talk to us a little bit about how important gymnastics was in Romanian culture and society in the 1970s? In other words, why did the communist Romanian government 
and leader Nikolai Ceausescu especially, put so much emphasis on sport and gymnastics? Well, um, that's an easy question. If you know the history of the uh, Soviet Union and after that uh, uh, so-called socialist countries uh, in Eastern Europe, you know, you uh, know that um, people uh, were uh, very poor and mostly were working class people. It was a dictatorship of the working class, but mm -hmm. actually the working class had no power. The communist power, uh, the communist party had all that power, uh, the political power. So uh, being a dictatorship, uh, they tried to keep uh, discipline in, uh, among the citizens too. So um, they pushed the sports a lot. To, um, uh, they created the um, so-called sport uh, centers, you know, they were not related to the school. Um, they are just uh, part of the city uh, and um, where uh, they uh, encouraged, you know, the youth to go and uh, practice sport, all the sports, you know. They, they had this idea of the mass sport, the mass sport, you know, everybody to do something, keep them busy. Don't think about philosophy, you know, don't, don't, don't you know, listen to uh, Radio Free Europe or Voice of America, you know, <laughs> go around. You know, do something else. So, or uh, to the Western music, you know, like it's was uh, very uh, much in fashion, you know, in Romania, to listen to music, you know, like rock music from the 50s that uh, it was very hard to uh, get, you know, in Romania. No, uh, uh, um, no, it, it, we had no possibility to have, uh, there were no CDs of them, you know, so uh, we, they are peace. There was no, uh, possibility to buy a piece, you know, and uh, so the youth, you know, was more engaged in sport than, uh, you know, the, the other activities like nowadays, you know, the uh, teenagers have in the United States or in the Western countries or even back now in uh, Romania. Uh, so, um, uh, also, we um, um, developed a, um, a competitive sport program so um, every sports school, you know, uh, besides the mass program where almost all the kids were able to uh, uh, join in, but they were tested uh, definitely. Uh, they, if they had uh, like um, abilities, you know, to practice uh, uh, track and field or soccer or, uh, you know, uh, fencing or gymnastics, so we directed them into different sports. And from uh, this uh, selection, uh, they uh, formed a, um, a, a team and cities, you know, teams that uh, they uh, practiced uh, high-level gymnastics. I mean, started to learn uh, high-level gymnastics. So they were very much encouraged, you know, to uh, uh, join these teams because also they had uh, economic advantages. Like uh, we got, uh, you know, um, stamps, like food stamps. Like we have here, let us say, food stamps. The kids they got food stamps to take home, and they're able to buy, you know, different uh, products, you know, um, for nutrition. Even we got some uh, money helps. We uh, are able to travel around the country to go to competitions, and that's that's all paid from uh, uh, by the state. Also, they are um, all very leotards for the gymnasts 
for warm-ups, um, all the equipment, you know, was paid uh, by the states. So it was tuition-free. It was tuition-free, it was paid by the state. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and the reason is, was that to uh, develop this religionistic, um, uh, these sports, you know, and to create champions, uh, because um, we wanted to show the superiority of the um, uh, communist system over the capitalist system, you know. If they can produce, you know, many big numbers of at least uh, uh, sportsmen, you know, then they can show uh, in the Olympics or uh, world championships or European championships or international competitions the superiority of the, um, the socialist system versus the capitalist system. Yeah, that's that's really helpful uh, in a couple of ways. One, it really lays out, um, you know, what the benefits that the gymnasts themselves received for their participation in these programs, I think, which we really need to keep in mind. Um, and it also kind of gives us a really good sense of why the government kind of had this project, right? Why they cared so much uh, about investing in success in the sport. And so that, that kind of leads to the next question we have, um, which is based in part on the uh, first episode of ESPN's 30 for 30 podcast, Heavy Metals, uh, which we've been listening to. And, and in that episode, it talks about how the Carolis worried that they would lose the, quote, favor of the communist government after the dominance of Nadia Comaneci in 1976 and leading up to the 1980 Moscow Olympic Games. So the question is really, what did it mean for the government to favor someone like you as a coach, uh, a choreographer? And, and kind of related to that, to what extent did the government actually put pressure on you all to produce Olympic champions? What was at stake or what were you risking if you actually did not produce champions? Well, um, you have to understand that uh, uh, the three of us who um, uh, worked with uh, and coached the uh, Romanian at that time, when I started to uh, uh, coach with Bela, uh, he was in charge with the Romanian junior team. So Nadia was like 12 years old when I started to uh, uh, train her myself. And I joined uh, Bela and his wife. She was 12 years old, so she was a junior. But I, uh, before that, I um, um, worked for two years with the Romanian uh, senior national team. That team uh, participated uh, in the World Championships that was held in uh, Varna, Bulgaria, in 1974. And 90% uh, of the team retired after the World Championships. So I had the choice, you know, to continue in gymnastics or I was thinking to go to uh, uh, study, you know, uh, law in, at the university. So I went to study law, but they came after me from the uh, Romanian Federation and they asked me if I want to go and help uh, Bela in this little city called Onesti. That was a city of 30,000 people a big industrial plant, that is, industrial plant employed all the, all the citizens in the city. And uh, also we have the, have the local uh, the sport movements and not only gymnastics, but the handball, track and field, you know, volleyball, everything, uh, what was, you know, sports related in the city. Now the Romanian um, uh, 
national junior team uh, was uh, financed by the Romanian Gymnastics Federation. And we were paid by the Romanian Gymnastics Federation. Um, I was uh, engaged like a ballet teacher uh, at the local gymnastics uh, school. So uh, also, um, I had to mention that Romania also, we had sport trade school, a so-called trade school, where um, different school people learn different trades. And just like they learned, you know, to be a plumber, they learned to be a sport uh, uh, competitor, you know. So they created these sport schools where they um, also, um, be, um, they had the curriculum, but usually the curriculum that usually the uh, regular school had, but uh, in the top of that, we had the sport program um, that included track and field, volleyball, and other sports. So um, one of these schools were in, uh, created in this, this city, but this uh, school was uh, created just for gymnastics. So they had regular teachers teaching math and uh, literature and history, etc., etc. You know, just regular curriculum. But on top of that, uh, every single student in that school uh, um, was taking gymnastics. Our um, team, we had a privilege to um, work just with the uh, junior national team, and for that reason. Our salaries, what we're supposed to do for the school, was paid by the uh, uh, Romanian Gymnastic Federation. So we had nothing to uh, uh, nothing to, to work with the school. We didn't do any work for the school. We just worked with seven, eight, nine kids. Then sometimes, you know, uh, with the uh, junior national team and the Romanian Federation. So we got our salaries, not working at the school. Plus, we got uh, bonuses, you know, and uh, different perks from the Gymnastic Federation, uh, like um, uh, we had uh, stamps to go to the best restaurant, you know, and uh, have a, a breakfast, dinner, uh, uh, lunch, you know, there uh, for free with those stamps. And uh, it was the best restaurant in the city, you know. So... Um, that was a first because a Romanian worker went to a restaurant only when he got married, you know, or somebody died, you know, we had a, <laughs> something like that because they couldn't afford it, you know. Yeah. So we, we went there every day. So um, that was a big privilege in Romania where, you know, to find certain uh, items, you know, nutrition, for the nutrition, it was very hard. You had to stay in line to get a pound of uh, meat hours and hours to have meat once a week. Mm. That was Romania at that time. So to have like a menu where you can select, you know, like a, uh, you know, best restaurant every day, that was a, a big uh, advantage, you know. So were, were those privileges like pulled back if you were, if your athletes were not successful? Like, could those privileges be taken back by the Romanian Federation if like, you didn't. You weren't producing athletes who were um, kind of at the top of their game. Well, if uh, you didn't produce, then they just replaced you. So you went back to the regular school, and you had only your salary, and you were an ordinary citizen. You know, 
and you have to stay in line for food. Just like yeah, that. yeah. So that was one thing, you know. Yeah. Especially when you have a small child, you know, a young child, and you cannot find milk, you have to stay in line for a milk at five o'clock in the morning to get uh, like a, a, a bottle of milk, you know. That was very hard. So uh, that those privileges were taken away that you became a regular citizen. So we mm-hmm. have to go through you know, all these, you know, uh, miserable, uh, you know, processes, you know, to, to, to get something uh, uh, just to eat. Mm-hmm. And sort of, sort of one comment that I have leading up to that is, as you know, I study Hungary and sport and communist Hungary and, you know, com- comparing Hungary and Romania, you know, life was not, people were not as destitute or poor in Hungary during this time. By the time we got to the 70s, people could, could travel abroad once every three years, they could go to restaurants. Um, so the circumstances in Romania, because they're so drastically different, actually made those privileges you could receive as a coach even greater, right, than, than in a place like Hungary where you could still afford to go to restaurants, you could probably still travel abroad once every three years. Um, so the, the, the specific context in Romania is really important here. Yes, uh, in Hungary after the 1956 uh, revolution, you know, the uh, government gave them more freedom. So they had more freedom of speech, you know, you can buy books, you know, like Steinbeck, you know, uh, or Salinger's in uh, Hungary, or um, even uh, backlisted uh, uh, books like uh, Solzhenitsyn, you know, or Pasternak from uh, the Soviet Union, who were on their uh, censorship list, you know, um, you can buy it in Hungary. So Hungary was, uh, had much more freedom, plus they had uh, um, little uh, little shops, boutiques, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. where uh, tailors and, you know, uh, shoemakers, you know, could make a lot of money, you know. So um, it, it, it was a different lifestyle, differently. That, I mean, that was a different lifestyle. They had, they had much more liberty, economic uh, freedom, you know, and also, you know, ideological freedom. We were uh, allowed to uh, make fun of the government you know, in the comedy shows, you know, like uh, it, that was not allowed in uh, Romania. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned already that you've, you've mentioned Bella Caroli and like if people know your history, they also know like you, you defected with the Carolis. Um, and this is outlined in Athlete A and in, in, um, uh, in the podcast, um, Heavy Metals. So we wanted to ask you a little bit um maybe get some background context for what the culture of coaching was like um, in the Caroli gyms in the 1970s in, in Romania. What was it like? How did they motivate athletes? And what methods did they use to motivate athletes? And why did they use those methods as opposed to other methods? Well, I have to um, go back a little bit to my own experience. Um, I was in you know, I was, you know, I, I was uh, growing up in a ballet school, in a boarding school. So we were about 40 kids in a, a dormitory, you know, and uh, we had a very structured program during the day. We woke up six o'clock in the morning, you know, we had to go to eat to a cafeteria together. So uh, everything was very structured. 
plus uh, the dance classes for, uh, we started our dance classes at like seven o'clock in the morning for a half, on a half hour. That was the classical ballet class, you know. And uh, the teachers uh, were very, very strict. Some of them, they used a stick, you know, a big uh, stick uh, to make corrections, you know. Extend your leg, point your toe, you know, keep your butt in, you know, and they are touching you. I mean, even the teachers in the classroom, you know, uh, were using, you know, this kind of methods, you know, to snap, you know, to hit uh, the kids over the head, you know, they didn't pay attention, to give them a slap, you know, if they uh, talk back or so well. Um, they had this physical approach of, uh, in the classroom too. So in uh, Romania, uh, also um, other coaches in the, not all of them, but uh, some of them, they use physical uh, abuse, you know, to motivate the kids. The coach before I started the gymnastics did not. And uh, at the um, senior national uh, uh, level, when I started uh, uh, to work with the national team, uh, definitely those girls were older. They are 18, 19, 20 years old. So they, we, we not, uh, they didn't get any kind of physical punishment. Uh, but we um, definitely watched their uh, weight, you know, they were put on the scale, you know, every day to weigh them, to get their weight, and they got restricted, uh, you know, uh, alimentation, uh, restricted nutrition. And um, uh, so they had to, we had to work out a day, in the morning, in the afternoon. They had not that life. We, uh, we were, uh, you know, uh, again, a uh, boarding uh, uh, school uh, situation where the whole team was in a sports center that was closed down and they spent their uh, uh, whole week, you know, in that, uh, uh, in, in, in that center. We had seven days workout uh, per week. Only Thursday and Sunday we had morning workouts. You know, and uh, those kids had no other life than gymnastics. Very seldom we are able to go and uh, visit home for the parents to come and visit them. But that uh, time for visitation was also very limited. So did the Corollis have like a very distinct way of coaching that was different than everyone else at that time? Or were the Corollis more just sort of the same in terms of how they treated their athletes? Um, certainly, um, we were part of the system, but they built, uh, you know, inside of the system, you know, their own system. Mm. And the old system was much more uh, brutal than uh, the normal. Mm. So, um, number one, uh, they uh, uh, ruled that nobody will come in the gym when we had workouts. That has only uh, allowed the team, the girls. It was Bela, Marta, I. It was the piano player who played the piano for us and our medical uh, assistant. And that was it. Nobody else was allowed into the gym. And there uh, it was our, uh, that so Bela could yell at the girls, you know, uh, slap them, you know, and uh, physically abuse them if they uh, didn't uh, uh, follow his directions, you know, or they didn't make uh, the right corrections 
what he thought that uh, they supposed to do. Mm-hmm. So he, he kind of uh, took it to a different level, let's put it this way. You know, the uh, severity of uh, uh, workouts, he took them to a different level, a higher level. Mm-hmm. And that was in the first period when we were in this little uh, town of Nesti, I told you about, where we started with Nadia. After Nadia was taken by the government from us, uh, Bela decided to go to uh, Transylvania, close to his hometown. Actually, we, uh, we, we grew up in the same city. I was in, I was in my schooling in the same city where Bela was born and he went to college. So became a PA teacher, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so, um, it it, uh, it 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 created you know he created a, a system on, on his own mm-hmm. you know by uh, being so uh, uh, physical with the kids but on the other hand they now uh, used the carrot and the stick because mm-hmm. um, in different occasions like when we went to training camps to the mountains or high altitude high altitude workouts. You know, he played card with the kids, liked to cheat, and the kids was laughing, you know, making fun of him. And he was coming back in the bus, they uh, played with his hair, they uh, did little ponytails, you know, on top of his head, and he let this all stuff going on. So this was a kind of reward for them, and the kids felt very close to him, and kind of they felt, you know, like a big daddy, you know. And when, when we get to the gym, and when they didn't follow a, or they didn't, they couldn't perform like he expected. Then the physical abuse came into the picture. You know. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, I really think you did a, a good job of explaining how he sort of created like a system within a system. Yes. As you said, um, and you know, I, I was wondering if you could maybe be a little bit more specific about you know, like what kinds of. Um, what would he do, for example, if an athlete was not like improving at the level or at the speed at which Bela thought that they should, or if they kept, you know, slipping from the bars or kind of missing a particular movement they were supposed to do? Like what, what might happen to an athlete, I guess, to get more specific? Well, uh, first of all, um, he gradually, uh, from yelling uh, at them, you know, and uh, giving them some uh, extra conditioning, he went to physically abuse them, you know. He just hit them, you know, yeah. or slapped them. So when they got very upset. That didn't happen every day, but uh, that was like uh, the top of the, you know, the uh, punishment that went this way. The physical abuse was the top of the punishment. Mm-hmm. It wasn't daily, yeah. but it happened like several times a week, you know. Mm-hmm. And I see. Um, and, you know, just to follow up on that, uh, after listening to the ESPN series, you know, I wasn't surprised to hear the claim that the Romanian, that Romanian or Eastern Bloc coaching was generally really disciplined, harmful, et cetera, which was, you know, repeated throughout that series. And you're giving us, um, you know, really pointed examples of that right now uh, in terms of the way that he assaulted these kids right as a form of discipline within training but um and and one reason for that is because you know i'm not surprised because this is how we often hear and this espn right we're talking about i'm talking about i'm not talking about what you said but i'm talking about what 
the fact that ESPN made this series. Um, and as an American outlet, right, there's a long history of speaking of Eastern Europe in Cold War terms as this kind of enemy and in every way, you know, what America does is freedom and what Eastern Europe does is the opposite of freedom in some way, right? It's some kind of a dictatorship, et cetera. And so American audiences would immediately assume that the worst things happen in Eastern Europe. That would be just an, an absolutely kind of obvious conclusion. And I think not shocking for American listeners, that's what they expect. But yet, there was something really powerful in that series for me. There was an anecdote um, about sort of talking through the experience of the defection of the Corollis and your own defection. And, and we will come to that again because I want to, I would love, we want to really hear about your experience. But that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is that they interviewed some of the athletes at the time, right, who were on the team and had been informed by the Corollis that they were about to defect, right? And then they wanted to hear kind of like how those athletes reacted. Um, and what was, what was so fascinating to me was how relieved those women were that, the, that their coach, the Corollis, the, the Bella and Martha were leaving at that time. And, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because the series is trying to tell us that like Romanian coaching in general was disciplined and abusive, right? In the way that you're describing the Caroli gym was. And I'm, not, I'm absolutely not disputing that the Caroli gym was like that. But my question for you is, in your experience, was the Caroli approach typical in Romanian gymnastics at the time, or was it really that they were an extreme version, right? Like they did those terrible things, but they weren't actually the norm. Because it sounded to me like those athletes were expecting because Bella was leaving, they would get a more humane experience of gymnastics. Uh, definitely. I mean, uh, <laughs> that was an example, you know, uh, uh, that... Uh, and Bela was very worried, you know, that it was a young man. His name was Agoston. Um, and uh, he uh, actually produced, uh, after we left that seat uh, of Onesti, in Onesti, it was a young coach who produced very, very good gymnasts with a deep, totally different approach. So he never uh, touched the girls, you know. He was talking nicely to them. He motivated them, you know, verbally, and uh, give them, uh, you know, uh, uh, rewards, rewards. He gave them rewards for their performance, rewards, you know. So uh, uh, taking them to have maybe some from time to time an ice cream or, you know, taking them to the city or uh, take them on a trip, you know, not for a, a conditioning reason or a training reason, just to be together, you know, to, to enjoy uh, the nature together. Let's have a little uh, picnic, you know, somewhere. So uh, he has a totally different uh, approach. And uh, this uh, uh, trend was growing. And uh, since they produced with this uh, approach, you know, um, uh, the Carolis uh, also felt, you know, pressure, you know, uh, uh, to produce even more higher-level uh, gymnasts, you know, to show that uh, he's still, you know, uh, superior to everybody else. And uh, you, uh, you, were, you were asking me some question about Everly. Uh, you said that her name is Collar. I have to tell you that she divorced. She's not Collar anymore. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Thank you for correcting us. <laughs> <laughs> She's not Collar anymore. 
the poor thing she, she was visiting a lot, you know, because she used to work for me like 15 years. She, uh, she was my head coach in the gym. So she's coming visit and then one day I came, she was very happy that she divorced. So I said, good for you, <laughs> because I didn't like the way at all. So um, uh, she was the one who bailed eyed to um, be the second night, you know. But uh, she wasn't, uh, uh, you know, uh, she, she had, you know, she wasn't that caliber of gymnast like uh, Nadia was. Nadia was like a little Mozart, you know, like she was a, a genius of, of gymnastics. Uh, she was a genius. I mean, that's, that was so, uh, so obvious, you know, to everybody who ever worked with her. So um, to find another Nadia and to create another Nadia, it wasn't uh, at all an uh, easy task, you know. So um, that Bela uh, uh, trying to um, create uh, the second Nadia and especially Eberle, he became very, very brutal. On that uh, time, after we moved to Diva, uh, to, to our uh, new gymnastics school, he became very brutal. And he uh, uh, was uh, uh, getting free hand in Diva from, from everybody. He was treated by God. And also, um, uh, I don't know if you've uh, uh, listened to this part of what I said before, that uh, he was protected by the prime minister of the country. From the prime minister of the country, his name was Ilie Verdetz. And Bela met this uh, person before the 1976 Olympics. And uh, uh, before the Olympic Games, we were in Bucharest, and the prime minister visited the site of the workouts. And he came to uh, see Nadia, you know, especially because they put lots of... Uh, you know, hope in Nadia's performance in uh, Montreal. And Bela was pleading for uh, uh, his wife to get a passport. At that time, it was very hard to get a passport for a, a, a husband and wife, you know, uh, because they are afraid of defection. Mm -hmm. So Bela talked to this uh, person directly, the prime minister, and they figured out who they were from the same city a little mining town. They were born in the little mining town. You know, and they, they connected right away. So um, uh, he had his uh, chief of staff, you know, to keep in contact with Bela all the time. So Bela actually uh, went over the head of the G Gymnastics Federation and the gymnastics official, and he treated directly with the uh, prime minister's uh, um, office, you know, to um, uh, to provide for him what, what he thought he needed, you know, and everybody was, you know, uh, kind of afraid to um, criticize him or uh, to question to question his methods, you know. So he came very, very uh, physical and brutal. So I, I have a, uh, just a follow-up about that sort of protection. I, I guess it's kind of two questions. When, when was this taking place? I don't know my history as much as uh, Johanna would, um, but like when was this sort of protection between um, uh, Bella and the, the prime minister sort of, what, what time frame was this? And then second, what, what types of, sort of manifestations of protection or, or what forms of protection would the prime minister give Bella? Like, like uh, maybe a little bit more specific in terms of 
what types of protections um, he was getting? Well, uh, you know, it, you have to understand the uh, philosophy of um, the, the Romanian, like uh, when you have a relation with a very, very uh, uh, highly positioned uh, government official, you know, uh, all your neighbors, you know, assume, you know, that you can do whatever you want to do. That was in Romania like a, a yeah. legendary, you know, yeah. to be connected, you know. And uh, if you, or you have a relative, you have a relative, you know, the government, you, you made it, you know. And nobody questioned this uh, type of uh, relationships. Uh, Bela, uh, as I said, met the prime minister after the, before the 1976 Olympics. Certainly, the result of 1976 Olympics uh, gave even more, uh, you know, uh, motivation to the prime minister to protect him. Now, what happened uh, in 1978, uh, uh, the girls uh, wanted, uh, the, uh, the conflict started with Bela, Bela uh, and Nadia and her uh, teammate, Teodora Ungureanu, when Bela wanted to force all the kids to stay in dormitories that was the, across the streets from the gym. You know, so he, he wanted to control them 100%. What they eat, you know, when they sleep, when they get uh, medical attention, when they can go and visit for his families. And Nadia wanted to stay at home because she was from that city. So she, before the Olympics, she stayed home. She didn't stay uh, in dormitories, you know, she stayed with her family. The same with the other girl. So yeah. they pressured the uh, Gymnastics Federation uh, to do uh, something about it, you know. And plus, you know, uh, all the uh, uh, brutal uh, approach of Bela's, you know, uh, not to them, specifically that to the other girls, you know. Mm -hmm. so it's even very hard to watch, you know, for them. Mm -hmm. So uh, then it was uh, the guy who was on top of uh, uh, the prime minister, his name was Ceausescu, <laughs> who had a wife. And the wife's name was Elena. And Ceausescu was a chauvinist. Verdes uh, was from Transylvania. He wasn't chauvinistic because he grew up with Hungarian kids, you know, even spoke a little bit Hungarian, you know. So he wasn't that chauvinistic. But Ceausescu was a big nationalist and very chauvinistic. And he hated the talk. He hated the idea that three Hungarians, you know, uh, have Nadia, working with Nadia. Only, only us. Nobody could, you know, approach Nadia not to work with her, you know. They send Bela, you know, to some assistance sometimes, and Bela get just rid of them in two, three weeks, you know. They made Bela so miserable, so just they ran away. So, <laughs> uh, uh, Ceausescu, wife, uh, was instrumental to remove Nadia and Theodora from um, Bela, you know, and that team that we had in Onesti to Bucharest, to train in Bucharest. And then we left Onesti and we moved to Transylvania. May, may I ask that the team in, in Bucharest, was it like Dinamo or? No, it was, uh, it was at the uh, uh, National Training Center. That was called 23 August. 23 mm -hmm. August was the day when Romania was liberated from uh, the uh, Germans. Mm -hmm. And they turned against the Germans when the Romanian government changed sides. 
Mm -hmm. So they left the alliance with Germany and they uh, made the alliance with the Russia, with the Soviets. Mm -hmm. So actually wow. they had the uh, Soviet army, you know, to pass the Carpathian mountains, you know, it was very hard to uh, pass. It, it was easy to defend for the Germans. So uh, the Romania gave a big hand to the Allies, you know, by changing sides. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow, we just have like so many questions that we want to ask you and you're just giving us so much amazing material. Um, so, you know, when I was listening to heavy metals, um, sort of one question that I had was sort of like, what happened to the Romanian gymnastics community after you all defected? And this is, this is so, as part of my research, I interview athletes who defected to the West during the Cold War from the Eastern Bloc. And, you know, I know that like you worked, as you said, with um, Emil Eberly, um, and you worked with her for a long time. And, you know, she was the one um, who helped you all defect from what we understood from heavy metals. And then she returned to Romania when you all stayed here. Um, so we're sort of curious, um, you know, what did or how did the Romanian government respond or sort of react to the news of the defection, of your defection? I think it was a mix, they had a mixed feelings. Number um, one, we are happy to get rid of us. <laughs> we are Hungarians, we are Hungarians, so they said, okay, bye-bye. So they depicted us in the newspaper all over, you know, like traitors. We got uh, uh, sentenced to, Bela got uh, uh, 10 years, Marta got eight years. I got only six years, so I got uh, <laughs> So uh, they confiscated, you know, everything that I had of my home. Uh, they wanted to, my wife to divorce me. They find her a husband, you know, a new husband, everything, you know, just to divorce me. So. Uh, they had a pressure on her. But actually, they, uh, they, um, uh, the Romanian Federation definitely, uh, what was the uh, top body of the Romanian gymnastics, you know, uh, they were very happy about it. And um, uh, they uh, replaced uh, us, you know, with some very talented uh, coaches because uh, Romania at that time, you know, made lots of progress. Runadia, uh, gymnastics became very popular. They find more and more girls wanted to follow Nadia's example, and they became champions. And also, they had good technicians to help them, coaches, you know. And uh, some of them, uh, the very first generation came after us. They are very uh, 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 much softer with the kids, you know. They were, uh, you know, very strict, you know, very, uh, you know, disciplined but not physically uh, brutal, you know. So um, they uh, definitely, all the girls were happy. I know this because my wife was teaching uh, in the uh, gymnastics school in, uh, where, from where we defected. So actually my wife was tutoring the team because the, the team didn't go to regular classes. Mm. All the kids, they, they were tutored in one class, you know, they had different levels, you know, um, but they were uh, taking classes together. And my wife was one of uh, their teachers, but she was a French teacher for them. So uh, she, uh, later on she uh, told me after she came to the United States that the kids were celebrating, you know, raising balloons, you know. <laughs> yeah. 
Happy New Year. <laughs> well, that's, uh, that was the reaction. But uh, later on, uh, they returned uh, slowly uh, to a more restrictive regime, the Romanians, to create uh, those big uh, uh, results. Uh, also be also uh, because uh, uh, Bela was making uh, uh, results in the United States through Mary Lou Retton. Also uh, with lots of luck because the Soviets didn't show up for the Olympics. So, uh, that allowed uh, that gave, you know, a, opened the door for Mary Retton, you know, the fact that the Soviets and the East Germans didn't show up. Mm-hmm. So uh, the Romanians showed up, but uh, 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 their best kid was also, you know, um, uh, uh, produced by uh, our uh, system back on that day, was the best uh, gymnast at the time. She fell on composer and she lost the first place. But um, the Romanians started to be more and more restrictive because they figured out that sooner or later the Soviets were pushing hard. The Soviets were pushing hard because they didn't come to the Olympics. They want to show to the next Olympics, you know, that they can beat the others in the world to be the best again, the Soviets, you know. And uh, uh, they became uh, we, we stricter and stricter, so we were heavy-handed with the girls. I, I was not there to tell, you know, if physically uh, we uh, touched them, you know. Sometimes I heard stories, but I had no first-hand knowledge, you know, what happened in the gym. But I know when we met them in international competitions that we were treated just like, you know, uh, uh, we treated the girls. We had to go, uh, go all the time in the group, you know, never leave, you know, the Olympic village, you know, to stay all the time together. We don't, uh, you know, uh, communicate with uh, different uh, uh, persons, you know, from different countries, you know. Uh, they are very, very well watched, you know. So it was very strict for them, to, especially in the communication, plus the uh, nutrition. The nutrition uh, philosophy stayed the same, like was under uh, Bela. Forgive me if this is a little bit of a personal question, but I- I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about why you wanted to defect and sort of what that experience was like for you. Well, uh, that, was, that wasn't the first time I wanted to defect. Actually, I uh, made a... Uh, of uh, an, an attempt, you know, to defect in, uh, in 1969. I uh, went to visit my uh, uncle in Hungary. I got a passport uh, by a miracle to go and even it was very hard to go to Hungary next door. I was born in the border town, mm. border town in, uh, uh, in Romania that uh, hist- by historic accident, was now Romania before was Hungary. So uh, the majority of the people in that city was Hungarian, no? So mm-hmm. we, we were not allowed to visit Hungary, you know? But fi- somehow I got a passport, I went to visit my uncle, I made an attempt, I was unsuccessful, you know, the Hungarians were nice to me because I was Hungarian, 
they said, okay, don't, we don't give you to the Romanian uh, police, you know, you just go back home. We didn't inform them, you know, what happened, but uh, don't try any anymore because just, you cannot do it. So that was my first attempt, you know. So uh, in my mind, you know, I always um, I'd like to read, uh, I uh, learned French, you know, and I was fluent in French, just to read the uh, uh, books that were not allowed in uh, Romania. Uh, my wife, who was uh, also a guide uh, for um, uh, French tourists in Romania during the summer on the uh, Romanian uh, 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 taxi, the sea resorts, the sea resorts. It was very cheap uh, for the French and Belgian, uh, the people from Belgium to come and visit, uh, or from Switzerland, the French-speaking people, to come and visit Romania. It was dirty cheap for them to have a great vacation. And uh, my wife was a guide there, and she was bringing uh, home books, you know, French books. So this uh, I learned, and I was also very, uh, you know, um, I had lots of appetite for uh, the Western culture, you know. Also, uh, I admire Picasso, you know, <laughs> this, you know and so, so I was very much into the Western culture, culture you know. Not Jimi Hendrix, you know, but... <laughs> 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 that was too much for me, but <laughs> maybe Elvis Presley, you know, and the Beatles, you know, and Rolling Stone, yeah. So we wanted to sort of ask you a, a bit of a personal question um, and sort of get your personal view since you experienced it, since you saw it. You know, how did you feel about the way the Corollis treated their gymnasts? And this is still in Romania. Um, and, and sort of to what extent were you able to sort of challenge them or sort of at least influence their style of coaching? And sort of lastly, like, do you have any regrets? I have to tell you that uh, Bela, Bela um, was dictatorial, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, if somebody uh, said no to him or he uh, criticized or questioned his method, you know, he was gone. Uh, when I was with them in Romania, in Romania he um, uh, changed for uh, about seven, eight uh, uh, medical doctors who took care of the team. He just uh, uh, fired them. It was one girl, and it was Johanna, by the way. <laughs> oh, wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> it was Johanna. Johanna, Johanna, she was a great uh, young lady, was a medical assistant, and uh, she uh, tried to help the kids, you know. Uh, you know she was taking them to a, cafe, uh, to a uh, store, you know, to have some uh, ice cream or something uh, during the, when we had a little bit of free time on Sundays. She's supposed to supervise them, to take them to the city to buy little things. But uh, ice cream and, uh, uh, you know, cakes were totally... Uh, uh, we are not in the menu, you know, in Bela's menu. So uh, when Bela find out, you know, that she was uh, giving them food and let them to do more than they supposed to do, she was fired, you know. They also they took away her passport, you know. So uh, if anybody uh, questioned him, you know, or uh, was against uh, his methods, you know, he was terminated, you know, uh, in, in few hours. Um, I, 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 got, uh, I was very close to them because, again, um, 
uh, we were Hungarians and we speak, uh, we, we spoke Hungarian amongst us, you know, mm -hmm. speaking Hungarian. So he uh, trusted me more. And uh, uh, the head of the federation was coming to me to talk to me. Hey, tell Bela to, you know, to don't hit them so much, you know, don't hit them so often, you know, to a little bit more, you know, uh, soft, you know. And, uh, uh, well, uh, Bela, uh, as I said, used the character the stick, you know. He became much, much more brutal when he went to Diva and to, where he wanted to create the second Nadia. But uh, uh, the Federation, they, also, they always kept in contact with me, the government kept in contact with me, and uh, asked them how things are going, you know. And I know that uh, if something happens, you know, uh, very, very drastic, and they were more worried than and this was a little bit, uh, you know, uh, uh, dirty, because they were more worried about Nadia than anybody else, you know. So their first concern was Nadia, you know. Not their kids, if they are slapped here, around or there, or even uh, he broke the, uh, uh, through this Eberle's, uh, you know, ribs, you know, he hit it so hard, you know, you know, worked out when she was on board that he broke the ribs. And uh, I told to the uh, Secretary General of the Romanian Federation, you know, and uh, he made sure that somebody medically helps her and, you know, under the table and she gets some help. So uh, 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 also I knew that uh, if, uh, and uh, the girls love to work with me, you know, because uh, I started the workouts with them all the time, eight o'clock in the morning. And I had them for about one hour, one and a half hour sometimes. And that time for the best time for them because I uh, got, piano uh, music, you know, in the background. I give them dance classes, we made up dances, you know, and uh, actually I try to teach them how to smile, you know, <laughs> because when you perform on the floor, you know, you have to supposed to smile, you know. So no matter how hard was the workouts or, you know, how much pain they had, they had to smile. So one of my, my duties was, you know, to make them express, to work made expression, to make them smile. So, um, uh, they uh, trusted me, they trusted my wife, because she was uh, my teachers too. And uh, my calculation was also that if I, uh, if I leave, maybe somebody else will come in my place who cannot give them these little uh, breaks, you know, the little breaks, mm -hmm. happy breaks, I call them happy breaks. When, and Bela trusted me, sometimes she uh, left the gym and I was by myself with the girls many times, you know, because mm -hmm. we went hunting, Many times, Martha uh, fell asleep, and I just uh, uh, did the workout, you know, with them. And obviously, give them uh, they they had a, a good time. So um, my calculation was, you know, that something worse can happen if I leave. So you you mentioned that Bella was sort of this. He ran a, a dictatorship, and and you also mentioned that you went kind of above. Bella and, and talking to the Secretary uh, General of the Gym Federation. And you're also pretty well known um, for being like uh, very supportive of athletes and providing them with things that Bella might not have, like chocolates and, and a variety of other things. How were you able to get away with that? Well, because uh, uh, the girls uh, didn't uh, certainly, uh, you know, uh, 
tört be én, you know, I mean, uh, we, we, we are not interested, you know, to tell Bela, you know, that these guys, you know, helping us, you know. And I, I didn't help them directly because my wife was seeing them every day. You know, they had a class with her every day. Mm. So my wife was doing this, not me personally. personally mm. you know? So, uh, and certainly they didn't want to turn on my wife because certainly not had good grades, you know, so <laughs> she would not <laughs> tell that Madame gave us, you know, chocolate, you know, here and <laughs> that's not kosher, you know, so <laughs> it yeah. was, um, it, uh, I, I, I had no prob- uh, problem with that, you know. And uh, even Bela, I think he liked the fact that uh, they relaxed with me because uh, Bela really liked the... Uh, when on the floor, you know, they express themselves and they smile and, you know, be very dynamic and, uh, you know, uh, have these uh, refreshing movements, you know. So uh, if you have a bunch of beaten up kids, you know, showing up with floor routines, you know, that's not a good, uh, you know, performance, you know. So uh, I, I think uh, he closed his eyes uh, many times, you know, that he knew, he knew that I'm so, he called me a softie, okay. So he always told me, you know, you have your mother's uh, uh, heart because he, he knew my mother. And he said, you're just like your mother. He goes, you're just like your mother. You are a softie. Okay. So I was softie. So I think kind of he accepted that I had a little balance, you know, uh, between his approach. And uh, if, if you can imagine how three of us are beat up the girls, you know, that, uh, <laughs> that's too much, <laughs> maybe. So once you started working uh, in the United States, did you feel like the gymnastics culture in the U.S. was significantly different than what you had experienced in Romania previously? Um, and again, I, I don't necessarily mean um, with Bella Marta specifically, right? Because obviously that's a that's a common factor that that came with you, and, and so that you know that's a thread that runs through both experiences. So I mean more the broader culture. You, you gave us some amazing insight into what the Romanian gymnastics culture was like more broadly, and the fact that. Um, Bella was somewhat exceptional in that context and just in terms of just how abusive he was. Um, so I'm just kind of curious how you felt the gymnastics culture in the United States was compared to more broadly the gymnastics culture in Romania, some of the main differences and similarities. Well, uh, that, uh, when I uh, started to work in, uh, in, in the United States, I worked for a year in a gym it was called uh, Bayer's Gymnastics. And I uh, lived also in the uh, owner's uh, home. So uh, I uh, saw, you know, the whole process, you know, of how uh, American gymnastics organized. So um, uh, especially in this gym, uh, I saw that uh, it was it uh, more uh, money-making uh, enterprise where uh, they wanted to have many, many kids in the classes, you know, uh, little ones, because those were the ones who brought the money in. Uh, the very high-level gymnast, you know, was an expense for the gyms. Because the coaches, you know, the high-level coaches were very expensive, and uh, the girls, they didn't pay enough tuition. They used to say that... Uh, you know, uh, uh, um, babysitter, you know, 
would cost them more money, you know, than to take uh, gymnastics lessons, you know, uh, at the team level. I didn't know until I came in that gymnastics was fun, supposed to be fun, you know. I thought that gymnastics you know, is like a profession, you know, this is like a, a piano player, you know, to exercise 16 hours, you know, uh, to become a concert pianist, you know, or Rubinstein, you know, so, so <laughs> or Richter, you know, so, uh, or Lang Lang, you know, so uh, that was my idea about gymnastics too. So um, the first thing that I did in this gym, uh, I had a couple of girls who wanted to do a more extensive gymnastics to get to higher levels. So uh, I introduced the two workout system, but uh, wasn't common in the United States at that time. Not too many gyms, maybe one or two in the United States did two workouts a day. So we had a workout in the morning and a workout in the evening, just like in uh, uh, Romania. So that's the first thing, the number of hours, you know, of uh, workouts and how to organize them. At that time, certainly at that level, you had the composer routines too. The composer routines are very hard, you know, very precise routines. They needed a lot of polishing and cleaning. So uh, you need a lot of time for that. And it was impossible in one workout to have that done. And so uh, it, uh, in order to uh, become an uh, elite gymnast, it was almost uh, impossible to become a good one without having to work out. So that was the first thing. Mm -hmm. uh, secondly, I um, certainly uh, uh, happened very seldom when a coach yelled to a gymnast or uh, was uh, mean to them, to be mean to them, you know. There was a maximum of got. Nobody I saw a coach in the United States to uh, physically abuse a girl. That never happened, you know. So that was a big, big difference you know, between the, uh, uh, the Romanian and the American system. Plus, in this gym where I started, I didn't know the, the scale, to put them on scale. And certainly I didn't introduce that too. I, uh, so I didn't uh, question their weights, uh, I didn't approach this uh, topic with them. But fortunately I had girls who had no weight problems, so that uh, actually never came up, you know in my mind. Uh, but uh, later on, after uh, Bela uh, made his, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, big result in uh, Los Angeles with uh, Mary Retton, more and more uh, started to copy uh, his uh, uh, methods, you know, to study him, what he does, you know, they came to uh, work for him, actually, to learn uh, his uh, techniques and methods. Well, technically speaking, he, was a, he wasn't a great technician, you know. Bill Neve was a gymnast. He was a hammer thrower and a handball player and a handball coach before he became a, uh, a gymnastics coach. So uh, technically speaking, you know, uh, it, that's an anecdote, you know. He went to Japan and uh, they asked him to do a presentation, you know, a seminar um, for uh, coaches in Japan. And uh, one guy was in computer there, figuring out what he was saying. It's about his favorite uh, topic, that was vaulting. Vaulting. He considered himself, you know, a world class uh, vault coach. 
So, and uh, one of the one Japanese, after he finished his presentation, came uh, to him instead, and he told him, you know, to Mr. Caroli, uh, everything what you said here, you know, it's impossible. <laughs> to do. Oh, it's just, no. te just technically impossible. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so he wasn't known as a, a big technician, you know. So um, uh, he uh, compensated all the time for the lack of uh, uh, his technical knowledge among the work and hours he put into the training. Uh, I traveled one time from Moscow to Riga. I, I was taking kids because Bela didn't want to go, Marta didn't want to go uh, to the Soviets, you know. I took uh, Eberly and another girl to the Moscow-Riga competition. And between Moscow, the two competitions, I traveled in a uh, train all night uh, from Moscow to Riga. And we get together before the coaches, the French, the Bulgarians, the Russians. So I spoke a little bit of Russian, and I spoke more Russian because I worked with that senior team that I told you about before Russian coach, and I, I roomed with him. So he taught me you know, how to play chess, how to drink vodka, and I learned also some Russian from him. You know? So um, I was speaking uh, pretty fluent Russians, and we got to get to the Russians and Soviets, and uh, they made some comments, you know, about uh, different type of um, uh, gymnastics. And uh, talking about Bela, uh, the Russian, one of the Russian uh, technicians said, one of the top guys said, hey, Bela, Bela, nema technika mnogo rabota. Nema technika mnogo rabota. That means, you know, in Russian, that there is no technique, only work. Nema technika, no uh, technique, only rabota, work, you know. Uh, yeah, so, uh, I have a fo I actually have a follow-up question to that because that's that's fascinating to me because what I'm hearing and what you're saying and, I, and I'm asking you this but what what immediately came to mind is it sounds like in, in the way that you describe the Bella was compensating right with work for technique yes. um, that like is it possible that his abuse itself was a form of compensation um, and like i.e. a more competent coach technically perhaps could have got the results that he got without that kind of extreme discipline and he was just relying on it because he didn't have that technical ability? You are exactly right. He compensated, you know, by not uh, able to give them the uh, very, very, uh, to finesse, you know, to finesse, to, to have the technical finesse because uh, uh, I, after that I worked with lots of uh, uh, Russian guys and have a lot of friends with them. They had totally different uh, methods and techniques of uh, teaching different moves, you know, and uh, different, uh, you know, uh, leading techniques, you know, uh, to uh, deal different drilling, different drilling to help, you know. Bela, uh, especially when I started the film, he wasn't using drillings and, you know, leading up uh, movements, you know, to the uh, to the uh, big uh, technical elements, you know, that need to be done on acrobatics, you know, or on board. Just do it, you know, do it, do it. He was very um, uh, uh, lucky with Nadia because Nadia could figure it out by herself, being extremely talented, you know, like uh, not only um, acrobatic and acrobatics or on boards, but even uh, when I 
And what if we were to create a new flow routine, if I gave her one idea or one movement, she was able to uh, do 15, 20 versions of it, you know? And I just had to pick, okay, well, let's keep this one, you know? So uh, it was extremely, coaching Nadia, it was playing a Stradivarius, you know what I mean? Playing a Stradivarius. Mm-hmm. It's a big difference, you know, when you have a Stradius, you know, for a violin, you know? Or you just one of the here from the store from next door, you know. Wow, I just I just want to say what I'm what I'm hearing in that um, is like is the tragedy in some ways for all the girls who followed because he happened to be paired with Nadia's brilliance and that made him feel like it was his methods that were brilliant when in fact it was the pupil right? Who could overcome the deficiencies of his methods. And then he pounded all the harder on the young women who followed because they couldn't be Nadia, but that could never have been their fault. Like a real coach teaches, they instruct, they guide, they nurture. And what does he do? He just crushes because they can't be the Stradivarius. That's heartbreaking. Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, the best example is Eberly, you know? Because Eberly was uh, uh, needed a lots of lots of work. I mean, Eberly was uh, um, uh, she couldn't even walk right when we uh, first started with her. And uh, but I was very, um, uh, very, very uh, patient with her, you know. And I uh, and I, I from a girl who barely can walk, uh, she became a world champion on floor in 1979. So I uh, started with her in 1976. So in three years, you know, she uh, was able to uh, become, you know, enough decent on floor to be the Soviets, you know. I mean, that was something because the Soviets uh, were the best in the world, you know, for four years and four years. And uh, it just uh, was a big, big achievement, you know. So uh, with lots of patience, you know, and knowledge, you can certainly have differently the girls. And this is what happened with the, I told them the young coach that Augustin, uh, um, uh, 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 coach uh, named Augustin came to uh, coach on that school where we left. He uh, uh, was very, very successful, you know, productive, you know, and made very quickly, you know, good gymnast because he was a very, very good technician. Thank you for listening to part one of our two-part series with Geza Pojar. And stay tuned for tomorrow as we drop the finale of our gymnastics week. I can assure you, you absolutely do not want to miss the second half of this interview. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to like, share, and subscribe. Give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram at endofsportpod, or shoot us an email at theendofsport at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.